from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what does system change actually mean? One woman's EV learning journey, a startup that's pulling revenue out of thin air, and as maritime shipping grows, how will the industry decarbonize? We're full speed ahead this week on 350. It's August 20th, 2021. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is the always summary Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Joel, how are you in this fine August month? You know, there's there's not a uh, question you can ask me where the answer isn't that old uh, journalism line. It's a developing story. Because <laughs> <laughs> just about everything... Seems to be. Um, I took a week yes. off last week. Um, yes, and, you did. I missed and, you. And it was, uh, it, it was just nice. It was, I didn't, well, people said, where'd you go? I said, well, I went upstairs, downstairs, hardware store, grocery store, out for walks. I was hanging around, but I took a week off from meetings, frankly. <laughs> it was delightful. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to take another week off next week. So, mm -hmm. uh, or at least part of the week and, and, mm -hmm. and actually head out of town for a few days. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it was great. And um, boy, uh, yeah, we had to cancel this week. We were going to do our annual Green Biz staff uh, summer funtivity, as we call it, where we're going to get at least the California contingent together. Sorry, Heather. Um, and we had to cancel it because for obvious reasons, we're just not ready to be together. And it's just a shame because we have so many new people working for us that we've never met. I've met a couple of them, take some walks with uh, two or three of them in San Francisco or Oakland uh, in the last few months. But we've never i've never met a half a dozen or eight i don't even know of our of our team and so and, and then of course you on the east coast or i know you're just chafing at the bit to uh get out here whenever you can yeah it is very frustrating i i do want i have people on my team that i haven't actually met in person yet jesse hi jesse uh so i would love to get out there and meet all these wonderful we were growing so fast um i one of the people that I really want to meet, and you'll you'll all meet her collectively later here on the podcast, is Sherry Totoki, who's uh, running our startups program. I, she's, she and I are simpatico. We, we spend a lot of time thinking about entrepreneurship and the ecosystem of climate tech startups and funders and, and so forth. She's running our Accelerate programs at Verge and Circularity, and I am really looking forward to meeting her because we, we, we do a lot of talking um, about coverage areas and, and so forth. And she'll be introducing one of our Accelerate winners later on in the episode. But um, have you met Sherry? Yes, we've- She's uh, one we've, of the people you have met. Yeah, we've, we've taken met. a walk. She's she's terrific. And uh, I look forward to you two uh, innovation junkies uh, getting together and, and, and having <laughs> yeah. a good time. But you know what? Let's, let's have a good time now and go back to the Week in Review. So 
I'd like to start with your story, Jill, because it made my head spin when I edited it this week. Uh, system change. And actually, I really appreciated it because I hadn't really thought about that phrase in the deep sense that I should. And one of these the things that, that your essay really made me realize as I was going through it was that it isn't as accessible as it should be, especially since much of what the climate movement really needs to do is very systems oriented, um, but we're always fixing a piece of the system and not really the whole thing. So it made me step back and really kind of question how I, I am covering things. But why don't you give me a sense of what inspired you to, uh, to go out and ask this question yourself? Because you've been doing this longer than I have. So I was a little bit surprised. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not so <laughs> out of it as I thought. Yeah, well, you know, you and I being word people, you know, we think about words and meanings and how they're being used and are they being used correctly and and why this word versus that word and, and, and things like that. And that's, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I love that. I live for that. It's just it's, it's just something that happens automatically. And so I've, I guess I've found myself as as a writer, as a journalist, looking at some of the terms that we use a lot, uh, greenwashing, uh, net zero and system change that you know people say uh, without sometimes without thinking and not really sure what it means in fact uh, you know system change not climate change has become a, a universal rallying cry in the climate and climate justice movements uh, a lot of it was i think spurred by uh, Greta Thunberg who back in uh, COP24 in Poland uh, gave a speech to the UN delegates and said you know if solutions within the system are so difficult to find then maybe we should change the system itself and uh, you know i don't she wasn't the first person at all to talk about you know, changing the system but since then a lot of people do you know we need system change we need to change the system and i saw, thought i'd say well, what does that actually mean and how do you change systems and then the other precipitating factor is i got a call from a woman um, in australia as it as it happens to be who who wanted uh, some help in uh, developing an interview series that she was working on about individuals and corporations who are who are making system change happens, then that gave the thought, well, has anyone in any corporation actually changed a system? So I talked to some some of my big brain friends, people who have been thinking about this for a long time and uh, asked them, you know, what is, how do you define system change? And yeah, to your point, Heather, this is just ridiculously complicated. Um, you know, we're talking about these new Vocabulary, you know, for most people, stocks, flows, buffers, leverage points, root causes, feedback loops, blah, 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 that you have to sort of parse your way through in order to, you know, understand uh, some of these things. But, you know, how does system change happen? And there's some great writings on this. Uh, Dana Meadows wrote a great piece in uh, back in 1999. She unfortunately passed in 2001. Uh, renowned environmental scientist wrote a piece called Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System, which has been become sort of an iconic piece and, and frequently referred to uh, one of the best pieces of writing on this topic. Uh, and I read, went back and read that again. And, you know, it's it's still really complicated. So, you know, my conclusion was that we need to make this stuff, as you said, more understandable and actionable to people who don't happen to know about systems ecology and organizational dynamics and chaos theory and things like that. So 
I hope it did. <laughs> I think, you know, some of the feedback yeah. I've been getting is, is certainly indicated an appreciation for, you know, thinking this through. And one of the other things that it really made me think about as well is that age old, I know we use the term collaboration a lot as well, right? But it does really underscore the fact that you can't keep talking around each other. You can't, a corporation can't announce a commitment or a goal or whatever and hope to achieve it without looking at the entire system that's affecting it. And we tend to be very myopic, I think, in in setting goals sometimes. And I say we in the in the royal corporate world we sense. Um, and I that's one of the things I really walked away with as well from the story. Yeah, and, and as you to your point of not fully understanding the system or thinking about it systemically can be problematic. <laughs> uh, you know, Amory Lovins is famous for saying, and this is related more to energy systems, sometimes when you optimize one part of the system, you pessimize the entire system. And, um, and, and, and there's, there's, there's obviously truth to that beyond, beyond energy. But, you know, another term we use all the time is ecosystem. And I'm not talking about it in the ecological sense. I'm talking about the ecosystem in the room. We talk about that at GreenBiz a lot, getting the, 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 the uh, supply chain, the value chain, the stakeholders and, and others, you know, that are involved with a, a particular topic. Um, I, I mentioned the uh, uh, what, a group that came together a decade ago to create the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. And it was ranchers and feeders and packers and processors and wholesalers and restaurateurs and retailers and government officials and activists and, you know, still not the entire uh, value chain. What about the people who live in communities where uh, where beef is produced and some of the uh, uh, what happens in the water supply as a result of runoff and things like that? You know, what about uh, people who eat beef and and uh, eat meat and and the nutrition aspects? You know, so even that's not the ecosystem in the room. So that's another one. How do you define the ecosystem for a given thing, for a, a cell phone, for a, a clock, for a shirt, for a computer, whatever? I'm just looking around my room. Oh, it's right in front of me here. <laughs> and uh, and I think, you know, there's a lot of, of defining and shared definitions and understanding we need to do in this field. So I guess I'm, I've sort of taken upon myself to do that from time to time. Now, I, I am going to channel what you did last week and, and spend some time blocking my calendar and, and taking less meetings so I can do more reading myself. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it, but speaking of that, we had a great piece uh, from our mobility analyst, Liz Morrison, uh, this yeah. week that was just, I think, uh, I really loved it. It's called My EV Learning Journey. And this is about Liz and her husband uh, uh, getting a new EV and driving from uh, San Francisco, where she she lives with their uh, their young young son, uh, down to LA, which is uh, you know three hundred ish miles, three hundred and twenty miles, I think. And uh, the experience they had with their Nissan Leaf and and trying to get it recharged along the way, or ideally make it in one trip without recharging. And as it turns out, it's wow, not an easy thing. <laughs> You know, the thing that really blew my mind, yeah, it, first of all, yes, they they had trouble finding the charging stations. And then when they did find some, they were broken. And then, oh, by the way, they're, they're relatively, I mean, it's a pretty new, new model. Was it 2020 LEAF? 
the char- it turns out the charger on that car is being kind of phased out in 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 uh, favor of others. Yeah, it's VHS and, uh, Betamax. It's I guess it's thing. like the one of them's gonna, one of them's oh gonna win. Totally dating ourselves here, yeah. by the way. Well. <laughs> but yes, I mean, I just, I how could you buy a car that that's that? Frankly, that's pretty young. It has a charger that's not being being very well accommodated. I just that that was sort of my 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 um, yeah. one of my things. Um, and then the other thing that um, that I that I really was struck by was the issues that they had charging the battery because it got too warm. It was warm. It was very hot on their trip. It's summer. Yeah. It, it was summer. It was summer. Um, they were in this. The, the charging station was in the sun, <laughs> so the car wasn't cooling down, and it just. It just, yeah, I, I was reading this this piece and thinking, wow, you know, I can't even imagine sitting in a car with, with a child that long that's, that, that wants to not be in a car that long anyway. And um, I really appreciated that she took this on. I mean, she's, she's not saying don't buy these. She's saying buy them carefully, <laughs> like understand what's, what's at play here and actually kind of um, you know, calling out, frankly, the, the car companies a little bit. I mean, this is, this is, this is the av- the buyer that you've got to accommodate. You can't accommodate like you. You need to think more about the middle class person that's going to be traveling with a family in their car, and they're going to p.s. have probably heavier load because they've got a lot of things for the toddler, and they're going on a road trip, and that affects the the life, you know, the, the load of the battery as well. And I just think um, her lessons are are well worth anyone who's thinking about buying an EV reading about them but also i think the the car companies should be taking note of of things like this and understanding like how people need to try to use these 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 vehicles so i don't know i think it was a great great job liz yeah and and just uh sort of the punchline or bottom line here and it's not a funny punchline is that you know if you drive from san francisco to la it should take you depending on how fast and how many stops anywhere from five to six maybe seven hours if you to you know take a longer there's different several different routes but um but typically if you're just going straight from point a to point b it's let's say six or maybe seven hours it took them ten 10 hours yeah. because of this it had to stop and it took an hour and a half charging that got to, them just to 80 percent and then they could only make it 100 miles because of the heat that before they had to stop again for another long slow charge and by the way did we mention the toddler in the back seat um <laughs> and so this yeah. is uh you know as she says uh, we need um, you know a lot needs to change we need safe shaded areas to charge chargers that are well maintained because they went to one place that had this now seemingly obscure technology that's being maybe not becoming the winner in this race and it was broken and so they had to find another one and they're not that easy to find so lots going on there so i think uh, it was it was a real eye-opener for me yeah but but let's keep moving from cars to ships and uh and and a uh, piece by John Matson, by the way, is that a perfect name for a writer? Someone writing about ships. Uh, Matson Line is the long time. At least growing up was the big shipping line that was docking here in the Bay Area. Maybe that's TMI. Did not know that. But John Matson <laughs> wrote from uh, Rocky Mountain Institute RMI wrote a piece about what will it take for maritime shipping to decarbonize, even as it's uh, the the amount of shipping is, is slated to triple over the next. 30 or so years. I don't know if most people know this, but but ships use 
a very low-grade, high-polluting, both CO2 and sulfur fuel called bunker fuel. It, it's sort of, because it's out to sea, we don't see the smoke, and it's it's been sort of out there. We don't hadn't dealt with it earlier, but now that we need to decarbonize our entire economy and that em emissions everywhere are, are critical, in fact, it's often called an invisible industry because we don't really see it unless you happen to live near a port. Um, this has become uh, uh, in the spotlight. So it's a, it's a big uh, big topic, and, and uh, um, John Madsen did a great job of, of deciphering it. Yeah, there's a couple of things for me that were new, newish, uh, if you will, and that that is, uh, it's, this is definitely one of those topics that's going to be forefront of top of mind at the COP26 meeting in November. It, it's apparently been brought up a number of times in the lead up. The G7 has addressed, addressed it several times when they were meeting as well. But part of that is because of the global nature of what how you need to decarbonize this sector. Every country has a different stake in this. And a couple of the particularly low-lying countries that, that are, you know, big stakeholders, the Marshall Islands and Solomon Islands, they're pushing a global carbon price for shipping. You know, Marshall Islands in particular is a huge player. They have thousands of ships. Um, so there's there's a lot of cooperation that's going to be needed here to, to get to the next place. And um, we've been working on, I mean, they, there have been some really positive signs like the Poseidon principles, which has to do with the financing of the ships um, have come in place. There's there's a number of banks and institutions that uh, that are on board, no pun intended, with that, and are you know funding only the sorts of ship investments that would point us to a decarbon you know a decarbonizing future. One of the other things that that really got me intrigued about this story was the fact that around 90% of the investment needed to really address and decarbonize shipping is on in the land-based infrastructure. So the the ports need to be retrofitted to accommodate these fuels, whether they're ammonia or or what whatever that hydro, you know, hydrogen and ammonia, some combination thereof, whatever it happens to be um, in the future, that needs to be addressed. And so, you know, as you as you think about the infrastructure investments that are being made, around the world, how are we preparing the ports to, to accommodate this? But also the ports themselves, you know, what are they using to move the equipment around? Are you going to have electric cranes and so, you know, like what is, what does the infrastructure there look like? So there's a huge land-based infrastructure investment that needs to happen to make this, to make this work. Yeah. Co well. Cold ironing, as it's called, when you're plugging in mm -hmm. uh, electrically mm -hmm. instead of running the engines while yep. you're in port. And, and there's all kinds of environmental justice issues around that, the communities that live around ports and, and yep. it, go, it goes on and on. But, you know, meanwhile, meanwhile, back at sea, uh, I love some of the technologies. I don't, don't really get into this in the uh, in John's piece because he's talking more about fuels, but there's this growing you know, back to the future trend to put sails on some of these ships. In fact, there's some new ships. There's a company called Ocean Bird that has these five giant, they're not even cloth sails, they're sort of big mechanical sails that that propel the boat forward. And it doesn't, it, it combines, it's like a hybrid. It's like the Prius. It's got two different engines in effect, or two different, uh, not engines, but two different modes of, there's uh, the wind is helping reduce the uh, diesel fuel or the bunker fuel that's being used on the ship. 
I think there's a, a great future here in rethinking uh, ocean shipping, and I'm sure we're going to see a, a, maybe a slow-moving revolution, but I, I like where it's going. And as the saying goes, whatever floats your boat. Accelerate, a fast-pitch competition featuring climate tech startups, is one of the most highly anticipated programs at our annual Circularity and Verge events each year. Accelerate at Circularity 21 took place in June and featured five circular economy entrepreneurs, each competing for the winning spot amongst our audience voters. My name is Sherry Totoki, and I am the Director of Startup Programs at GreenBiz. I am joined today by the winner of Accelerate at Circularity 21, Allison Dring, founder and CEO of Made of Air. Welcome, Allison. Why don't you start by introducing yourself and telling us about the problem you're solving at Made of Air? Thank you, Sherry. I'm so excited to be in conversation with you, and we're just thrilled to have won the Circularity 21 Accelerate title. I'm a CEO and the co-founder of Made of Air. Made of Air is really focusing on um, what we consider to be the the crucial problem in, in the climate crisis, which is the oversupply of CO2 in our atmosphere. And you hear a lot about technologies that are gonna reduce our emissions, that are gonna capture our emissions. At Native Air, what we're looking at is our existing CO2 that's been pumped into the atmosphere since the industrial revolution. And we, are, we have developed a method, which is a carbon removal method, to take the CO2 out of the air and store it into materials that we use to manufacture our products. And so Made of Air is really producing a thermoplastic material, and it's based in a technology called biochar. And what this is, is um, it's, a, it's plant material that has been put through a pyrolysis step. And uh, in this step, we're able to take the CO2 that's stored in the plant material from photosynthesis, and convert it into elemental carbon. And when we make the biochar from the biomass, uh, we are able to prevent the CO2 in the cells of the plant from going back in the atmosphere. And that's what typically happens with plant materials as they start to decay is the CO2 that they're storing is gonna go back in the air. So what we have is a permanent method to get CO2 out of the air and into a usable material. So we're, we're compounding this material with bioplastics to make useful thermoplastic compounds. And what we do is sell those into supply chains where manufacturers are already using materials, mostly fossil-based. And uh, we offer an alternative that can take their materials, which are emitting a lot of CO2 and can reverse that process. And what we offer them is a material that's carbon negative, that's actually able to store CO2. And this is helping our customers see that they can, uh, they can do better than carbon neutral. They can actually uh, take their supply chains and, don't, and recognize the problem and, uh, of the CO2 emissions in their supply chains and reverse that process and enable the kind of the, the production lines that they have in place um, to, to do something great for the planet. 
it's such an important problem that you're solving. I know that so many companies are working towards this net zero goal and supply chain is a huge part of it. We just had our net zero conference a few weeks ago. Um, so I know that this is such an important solution that corporates are looking for. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the different types of products that you've made uh, through Metaver. I know you have a variety of different types of solutions that you make with your materials. Uh, what are some of those? Sure. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, and there's a lot of tension around being a materials company because we make something so far back in the value chain of so many products um, that it, we feel like it can have universal applications. We are focusing right now on the replacement of products in three markets. We're looking at the built environment, which is a heavy, heavy emitter right now currently contributing to about 40% of our global CO2 emissions. We're also looking at the automotive industry and the materials made particularly on the interior of cars and, uh, and the furniture industry, where you see a lot of thermoplastics and other composite materials that are currently kind of terrible for the environment and a lot of opportunity to replace those. And I think what all three of those industries have in common is that they have products that have very long life cycles. And that's something that we're really looking at. It's the it's a kind of durable materials where we think we can have the most impact. So in the case of a building, you have products that are really going to be on the building for, for 20 to 30 years. And we feel like if we can swap out those materials, and I'm talking about even aluminum paneling, or high pressure laminates or cement fiber board paneling, these kind of very high CO2 emissions materials. If we can get a carbon negative material in those products, what we can do is extend the life of the biomass. And uh, at the end of its life, at the end of the building, you don't have a kind of throwaway culture uh, in place. We have a culture of demounting the building, of considering the value of the materials already. So these are industries um, that we're starting in because they have this advantage already. And I know that you've been working with some exciting partners to implement these materials. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and some of the projects that you're working on? Sure, yeah, we've had some really exciting partnerships right from the beginning. We're working with some great pioneering companies. And the first one that we started with a couple of years ago now is Audi. And um, we've been working with Audi on their corporate architecture. We looked at initially their dealerships and particularly the facade materials that they were using on the dealerships. And what they had in place was an aluminum panel system. And uh, aluminum paneling, it has, you know, it, it has a high CO2 emissions footprint. And they came to us and said, could we not just replace this material with another material, but we'd like to do something that really proves uh, how pioneering Audi is. So we developed a material that could be a facade panel and uh, we put it, we developed it, we produced it and we put it on the very first of the Audi dealerships just outside of Munich in April this year. Um, so in that, on that project, you see about 500, 600 square meters of the world's first carbon negative facade panel system. And we're currently talking to Audi about how that becomes part of the, the, the prototype for their, for their rollout, what, what happens over their corporate architecture. Um, another partnership that we've launched is with H&M. We launched that late last year. And the first kind of product that we worked on together was a pair of sunglasses. 
the challenge there was how do you take a pair of plastic sunglasses and swap out the fossil plastics and turn that product into a carbon sink? And we worked together with them on that and got an injection moldable material that they could produce with their suppliers in their design. And we made a great um, contribution to their collection. They have a sustainability collection that they released in December. So that's a kind of great way to kick off how Made Avera can work with, with consumer brands within their supply chains and really look at, you know, not zeroing in on one product necessarily, but looking at their whole supply chain and deciding where can we have impact? Where is their volume? So we've been doing a lot of that work together and we've been working with numerous other consumer brands at the same time to kind of dive into their supply chains for the same reason. Well, those are some really exciting partners and it's great to hear about all, all of the progress that you're making at Made of Air. So what's next? So what can you share that's on the horizon? Yeah, well, I'm super excited to make a little announcement here. We have just completed our seed round. We actually completed it in the spring of this year and uh, we're very excited to welcome new investors into the, into the family and uh, to start really our scale process. Um, we are also excited to announce the completion of our brand. We've done some branding work with Frog, and uh, we're really excited to kind of show what we came up with to the world and to really get the message out around carbon negative materials. We are planning to take all of that momentum and all that energy and put it toward scaling up. So we're building our first factory right now in Germany. And we will have a kind of higher volume capacity to be able to work with our bigger consumer brands and to be able to produce the world's first carbon negative production process. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on GreenBiz 350, Alice. And I'm so excited to hear about all the progress that you're making and just to see what's next for Made of Air. Thanks so much, Sherry. It was thrilling to talk to you. I'm, I'm really excited to be part of this conversation. You just heard from Alison Dring, founder and CEO of Made of Air. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we've mentioned. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them, so you can stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you, your comments, questions, and tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. As I said, I'll be taking another week's respite, but Heather and Deanna Anderson will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.